Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the UC Irvine campus and we stream live at KUCI.org. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett and today my guest is Patricia Engel. Patricia's books include The Veins of the Ocean, which won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and was named a New York Times Editor's Choice and a San Francisco Chronicle Best Book of the Year. Her other novels include It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, and Vita. Patricia was the first woman to be awarded Columbia's National Prize in Literature, the 2017 Premio Biblioteca de Narrativa Colombiana. She's been awarded fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment of the Arts, the Florida Division of Cultural Affairs, Breadloaf Writers Conference, Hedgebrook, and Key West Literary Seminar among others, and is the recipient of an O. Henry Award. Her short fiction has appeared in The Atlantic, A Public Space, Plowshares, The Sun, and her criticism and essays have appeared in The New York Times, Virginia Quarterly Review, Catapult, and in numerous anthologies. She's here to talk about her new book, Infinite Country, a New York Times bestseller, Reese's Book Club pick, Esquire Book Club, and Book of the Month Club pick. Next, Indie Next Pick, Amazon Best Book of the Month, and more. Welcome to the show, Patricia. Hi, uh, thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Oh, of course. Um, let's begin uh, with you telling our listeners a bit about Infinite Country and how the story came about. Uh, well, Infinite Country tells the story of a Colombian family fractured by immigration and deportation over a period of 20 or so years, beginning in the late 1990s, and it follows them all the way up until about 2018. So uh, you meet uh, a pair of teenagers named Elena and Mauro, um, who fall in love in Bogota in the late 90s and um, follow them as they become parents together and look on tourist visas to the United States at the turn of the millennium and decide to overstay as their life changes very rapidly and their family continues to grow. So you follow them through those challenges um, against the, the backdrop of a changing United States as well as a changing Colombia back home and see how their lives are complicated by the challenges um, that are very typical for mixed status families where different members of the same family occupy different places on the migratory status spectrum. Hmm. And the book details with such clarity how it might feel to be an immigrant with nothing. Um, were Elena, Talia, and Mauro based on anyone in particular? Um, they're based on countless people. <laughs> it's, it's, their story is a very typical story. It's a very common story. Um, I'm the daughter of immigrants, and I've always lived among immigrants and in communities of immigrants. So um, these are stories that I'm very familiar with, and I've seen uh, lived in a thousand different ways, but with a lot of commonalities to the experiences of this family. So um, while they are entirely fictional and their particular trajectory is invented, after all, I, I write fiction, um, it's, um, it's very true to life um, and true to the lives of many, many people. Mm. And then there's a ticking clock uh, with Talia having to get to the airport. Um, I was curious, I mean, his novels, it seems novels with ticking clocks the ticking clock is always a good idea somehow. It just, it provides kind of a framework and um, it's a source of tension, ongoing tension. So I was curious at what point um, did that come into your story? Was, was it there from the start? Did you know that was that Talia and her having to get to the airport was going to be a major part of this book or did it evolve into that? All of life is a ticking clock. It just depends how we measure it. You know, time is ticking for all of us from the moment we're born until we die. And then, of course, there are smaller increments that we define in different ways. So um, the immediate timeline of the, the narrative in Infinite Country is Talia, who you meet in the first page, is escaping from a juvenile correctional facility because she's got to get to Bogota in order to catch a flight 
to meet her mother, Elena, um, and siblings who she hasn't seen in 15 years since she was a baby and she was sent back to Colombia so her mother could um, sort of find her footing as the family breadwinner in the United States after um, their father was deported. So um, that is the, that is the immediate um, concern for her, and she really is uh, the pendulum for this family that's fractured and divided and and split in half. Um, and so much of her absence defines the life of the family that she's left behind in the United States. And of course, the fact that she's leaving is going to change everything for her father, who will now be left alone in Colombia. Is it a, a common experience um, for, for couples, for families to be split as they are where Amaro state, he's in Colombia and Elena is in the US. And um, of course, Antalya is trying to get to the US. Uh, is that a pretty common story? Yeah, it's very common because immigration system is designed specifically for the purposes of dividing families. Um, that's a tactic. It's a very common tactic to deport one parent. And so the other parent will be left so desperate that they will leave too. Um, or, you know, to try to um, attack the family unit in one way or another so as to destabilize it and make it more vulnerable um, for a variety of reasons. It's an extremely common story. Um, it's unfortunately all too typical. And yes, very often um, tasked with providing for, for a family, parents will send a child to be cared for by other, for, by other family members until they're able to send for them later. Mm. You know, the, the immigrant story, it's interesting because so many of us um, come from immigrants. And, and so I'm, I'm constantly just amazed at the outrage that I hear around me um, here in Southern California, where, you know, uh, it's as if people should not want to come to the U.S., right? And, and, and people are offended that, um, well, here we're, we're bordering Mexico. And so there's a lot of sort of defense against, well, why you know, they need to come in in the proper way. They can't just come in. And, and yet, you know, I'm, I'm assuming most immigrants, well, at least my relatives did not come in in the proper way um, back in, I don't know, the 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, what do you think about that? Um, well, it's not some of us uh, come from immigrants, it's all of us, um, except those of us who come from indigenous communities. Um, I think most people in the United States are completely disassociated from their immigrant past, perhaps because their family is not actively in the immigration process or it's not in their recent memory with, with a parent or grandparents. So because they can disassociate, they can feel like they have nothing in common with people under, who are actively undergoing that experience. And um, you have to wonder, how can that be, right? And the fact is because the public mind has been trained to think that way. I think if people were to stop and ask themselves, really, why do I think those things? What, why have I accepted those messages that have been ingrained into me? They would start to think about things very differently. Um, the, the, the human species has ensured its survival through movement, through migrating, just like other species do in search of resources in order to provide for themselves and for their young. It's a natural instinct. And the fact that the world has been artificially bordered does not inhibit the human instinct to live and to thrive, to escape danger, to pursue uh, better resources. And there's nothing wrong with that. So that's really how the world has defined itself, how this human species has managed to populate the entire planet. And if people were to stop and to think about, well, what would you do if you in the state of California could never leave it? Because all the neighboring states put up borders that were militarized and said, we don't want you here. And if California was faced with such crisis of uh, maybe um, a climate disaster 
or a human rights crisis or civil war or any sort of thing, or there was a drought or famine, um, anything that you can imagine that would make you want to perhaps travel a, a little distance to see if you could do a little bit better for yourself and for your um, children. And the neighboring states did not want people from California there, they did not want them there. I mean, think about that because California is a state that is larger than a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. you can travel um, the distance of California and, uh, you know, and it's the distance of traveling a continent. And I think in the United States, because our continent is so enormous, we really disconnect from the distance factor, from the fact that people just take for granted moving from one side of the country to another. We even we call ourselves bi-coastal and it's like, we don't think twice about it. Well, you know, things are not going so great for me here in Florida, I'm gonna try my luck in Seattle, right? And that's the distance, um, you know, of flying to another continent or traveling to another continent, it's an enormous distance. But here in the United States, we can do that without having our papers checked. And people who live in much smaller countries can't, don't have the luxury of the mileage we do. And I think if people really start to examine those little um, factors that together assemble this puzzle of this dilemma that allow them to look down upon and be so judgmental of a human being's need to move, you know, to travel a distance, they might start to think about it differently. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, it is hard for people to imagine. I mean, you know, being on the run, being an immigrant with nothing, um, your characters travel from, at one point they travel from South Carolina um, and they're washing in restrooms, they're sleeping in the van. And it's, it's just, I mean, yeah, we don't, we don't think about what people go through until we do. And then you can't imagine, right? You can't imagine being in that position. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not like media portrayals or do anything, doing anything to um, help people better understand such an experience in order to develop more compassion for people who have that experience. Mm. I'd love to hear you read from Infinite Country. Could you please? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. I'm just gonna read from the beginning. I'll read from the scene that I just mentioned before, which is Talia, um, as you meet her, um, breaking out of the juvenile um, detention facility mm -hmm. in the mountains of Santander, Colombia, high in the Andes. It was her idea to tie up the nun. The dormitory lights were cut every night at 10. Locked into their rooms, girls commanded to a cemetery silence before sleep, waking at dawn for morning prayers. The nuns believed silence a weapon, teaching the girls that only with it could they discover the depths of their interior without being servants to the temptations of this world. To be fair, the nuns were not all terrible. Some Talia liked very much. She even admired how they managed to turn the condemned penitentiary population into mostly orderly damitas. It was a state facility, a prison school for youth offenders, not a convent and no longer a parochial school. The lay staff reminded the sisters to aim for secularity, but on those missioned mountains, the nuns ran things as they pleased. During the day, under the nuns' watch, the girls practiced their downcast gazes. They attended classes, therapy sessions, meditation groups, completed chores, uniformed in gray sweats, hair pulled back, forbidden from gossip and touching, but they did both when out of sight. At night, in the blackness of their dormitory, they gathered to whisper in shards of windowpane moonlight. When the nuns patrolled the hall outside their room, they became masterful mutes, reading lips, inventing their own sign language, moving quiet as cats, creeping like thieves. They listened for the nuns' footsteps on the level below, sensing vibrations on the wooden floor planks, the search for rule breakers, disruptors their guardians would schedule for punishment at daybreak. So I'll stop there. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, well, what Talia does to put her in this place is, um, it's kind of interesting. There's a, you know, she does, I don't know, can we talk about what she does? Is that, is that a, 
I guess you could say uh, she commits a crime. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it's really up for a reader or a person to determine whether she was justified um, and you know uh, what that really means to do the wrong thing for the right reason. If that there's you know a space in justice for that sort of thing, or if a crime is a crime, and and it asks those questions. I sort of thought she was justified in what she did, you know? It's like, well, what are they putting her away for that for? Okay, all right. I mean, I suppose a crime is a crime, but that that is interesting, you know, having to remember thinking, well, you know, what would I do? Um, I, I wouldn't do what she did, but I don't fault her. So um, anyway, what, what was your opinion? I mean, I don't know how much you gave that thought and what side you come out on well you know when as a writer I try not to take sides <laughs> and really just write the truth of the characters without passing judgment on them you know when I'm always curious with um writing characters that get in trouble and um how to maintain that distance where you can let your characters get in trouble and bad things can happen to them, even though you created them, you love them uh, to one, to some extent, or else you wouldn't have created them, even, you know, the so-called villains or the, the bad guys. Um, I mean, what do you, how do you maintain that distance? Um. Well, for me, that's kind of the fun of it, you know. Um, for me, the fun of it is getting to write towards the complexity and the gray areas um, in a character's ethics or morality and not having to have an opinion and have a judgment and just really writing things as they are and letting them be imperfect and complicated. And um, I actually enjoy being in that space, not having to make a, you know, a, a value judgment on who they are or what things mean. Hmm. So with Infinite Country, are, how much did you know going in? I mean, did you have the basic idea or the basic premise and then you began writing or did you know where you were headed? Did you know that ending that you have here, did you know it would end that way? And, and then you fill in the middle or, you know, just how much did you know? Um, when I started, I knew that I wanted to write a family story. I wanted to write a portrait of a family, um, you know, actively immigrating and undergoing the immigration process um, and being challenged by it. So I wanted to write in a way that spoke to that collective family experience, but also um, in a way that would also uh, give the space for the individual characters to share their story and to share the things that they weren't even saying to one another. So that was my original impulse and it took me some time to work out how to do that. Um, I had an idea of how the story would begin. The beginning that it has now is the beginning it's always had. Uh, I had a sense of where the end might go, but it, it was not anything clear or specified. Um, I wanted an ending that was true to the circumstances and situation of this family that, that was entirely possible, um, that was well-earned, but also showed you um, the sense of impermanence that they have to live with and that their luck could change on a dime the next day and that things could be very different very quickly for them. Hmm. One, one thing I found interesting because, you know, here we have um, opinions about Colombia from, you know, years of hearing about the drug trade and the violence in Colombia. And, um, and yet there's, um, I think it's in the chapter more toward the end um, or maybe the middle where Talia uh, meets up with a guy on a motorcycle, Andres, and um, who who helps her get from one one place to another, and and um, 
there's a comparison between the violence in Colombia to the violence in America. And I think what he decides, what he says, um, is that the US is actually a more violent country, which is interesting. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I I think that the fact that that surprises people, it, it only surprises Americans that people think <laughs> that. Because um, I've traveled a lot and very often people think of the United States as a terrifying place. Right. Yeah, I, I thought that I thought that was really interesting. And some of the descriptions of Colombia, um, I think most of us don't, unless we have a connection, a close connection with Colombia. I don't know that we picture it as such a beautiful, lush place. I don't know what, how we picture it. Actually, it made me really think about, you know, what do I what do I think of this place? What do I want to go there? Maybe I want to go there now. Um, you know, it's really kind of interesting how the book did that. It, it made me look at place a little differently. Yeah, um, Colombia is, is a country that's been the victim of stereotypes in the United States for decades um, as a result of, you know, um, drug wars and drug trafficking, you know, uh, promoted and financed in large part by the United States. Um, so, um, stereotypes have that function. They limit our knowledge um, and perspective on different things in different places and different peoples. Um, the, the way that I write Colombia is the truth of it. It's an extraordinary, beautiful country. It it's one of the most eco-diverse countries in the world. It is spectacular in its beauty. And yes, it's had problems like an ongoing uh, civil war for uh, decades and, and all sorts of um, social issues as well but it does have great beauty and great joy and is so culturally and ecologically rich. Um, but, you know, again, um, stereotypes have clouded that um, and left most people in the world ignorant to what uh, Colombia really is. Mm. If you just tuned in, you are listening to Writers on Writing. I'm with Patricia Engel and her book is Infinite Country. Um, curious about the point of view. It, it, it goes from sort of an omniscient or distant third to first. It alternates a bit. And I am curious why you chose that. Well, it's actually first person all the way through. Um, a lot of people um, think that it's third person, um, you know, for a great stretch of it. But when the narrator reveals herself at a certain point in the book, um, my hope was that, that people would see that that she is the family chronicler. She's assembling the story of her family, as she says herself. Um, the, what's different is that she did not center herself in the earlier part of the book. She was centering the stories of her parents and her sister until it was time for her to speak for herself because she has things to say. And then she also hands the narrative over to her brother at a certain point. But it's her story all along. That's so interesting. <laughs> now I have to read it again, right? <laughs> God. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I have to take a look at this. Um, I wanted to talk about setting as well, because you do setting so beautifully. And, um, you know, setting is one of those things that it, uh, it's easy to resort to cliche, you know, when we talk about place, especially if it's place that we're familiar with. Um, could you talk a little bit about writing setting? Do you love writing setting? I do, um, but I also think it's a great responsibility because um, as you said, you know, you're, you're basically the, the eyes and ears of the reader. And um, if you portray a place in a way that's not authentic, that's not informed, that's not true, um, you're actually doing a danger to the place and a disservice to the people who know that place and care for it. So I think um, the way that we approach setting has to be very thoughtful, responsible, well-researched. And then of course, as a, as a writer, um, setting not only is informative and descriptive and enriching and atmospheric, but it also reveals something about the characters inhabiting that place and what it means to them. So it's doing exterior and interior work as well. Mm. 
Yeah, there's so many descriptions I, I underlined here because uh, just really original, original descriptions of setting. Um, do you have readers? Do you, do you have uh, people that you send your work to before it goes to your editor? Um, um, just my agent. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, pretty much. I, I write very alone, very solitary. Um, that's the only way I can really sustain my own connection to my work is when I'm just working out my issues with it on my own. Um, and then when I feel it's at a certain point, I send it to my uh, to my agent and my agent is a great reader and, and um, she helps me sort of push it forward. How do you deal with scheduling? How do you deal with teaching and writing? Do you, how, are you really strict with your writing schedule and you have particular days that you'll write or times? Um, you know, I have to uh, be flexible, but also disciplined. Um, so of course, you know, life, life gets in the way often and I have to do the best that I can. But what I always tell my students or even friends is that, you know, you have to prioritize your writing and show up for it the way that you would show up for a doctor's appointment or a gym appointment or a coffee date with a friend, anything that means anything to you where you wouldn't simply stand the person up or just not show up, right? Um, so as my schedule permits on non-teaching days, I can hopefully put in a couple of hours um, at my desk. Um, usually on teaching days, that's, that's all I do is teaching and you know preparation and things like that. And then there are days when, when I do neither because I have to do life things and errands and appointments. So um, I do my best. Do you think writing can be taught? Uh, I think craft can be taught, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, techniques and style and strategies. And yeah, all that can be taught. Hmm. I wanted to ask you about the size of the book. I read The Veins of the Ocean, which oh, I love. Thank you. Loved it. I loved it. And um, I, I remember it as being sort of a, a big book. And um, Infinite Country is a slimmer book. Mm -hmm. um, I wondered if you've been pressured to write bigger books. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard from um, editors that publishers like bigger books, especially if, um, well, especially when we were going to bookstores more, I suppose, <laughs> because they stand out on the shelf. And so I wonder if, you know, if were you pressured to make Infinite Country bigger, or or uh, you know, I mean, sometimes I think bigger books um, could be slimmer because I, I feel like there's just padding in a lot of mm -hmm. larger novels. I didn't feel that way about the veins of the ocean. It was gorgeous, a gorgeous book. But I don't know what what do you think? I mean, have you seen that change at all? Because we're doing more shopping online and and not going into bookstores as much? You know, I haven't felt that pressure at all. My first book, Vita, was a short book. Um, and I never heard anybody say write a bigger book or anything like that. Um, I think each book determines what it needs to be. Um, the Veins of the Ocean, yeah, was a lot longer. I think it was like 400 pages and Infinite Country is just under 200. So yeah, there's a difference there. But that was a challenge that I set out for myself. Um, I wanted to write a story that felt urgent, you know, like an intimate conversation that you were having that a person was telling you just like in one big breath. Um, I didn't want to have the like meandering long passages, like you said. Um, I wanted it to feel immediate and have quicker pacing and not have so much rumination. So that was just, those were decisions that I made because I thought that they would be appropriate for the story and um, the experience that I wanted the reader to have with this particular story. But I think other books are different. The Veins of the Ocean needed to be bigger and that's why it ended up being bigger. Um, and my, my second book, It's Not Love, Just Harris, was somewhere in between. But um, 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think in publishing, there will always be people who love big books, but I have to say some of my favorite books are very short books, um, very slim books. And I know that a lot of people love those too. So, so um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really heard pressure or received it um, one way or another. And you write short fiction as well. And mm -hmm. So how do you know when, I mean, do you know when you're getting into a project, what it's going to be? Does it, does it sort of tell you, you know, this, there's a lot to this one, or this one is, you know, this needs to be short. This needs to be a story. It can't be a novel. I mean, how do you know? Um, well, usually I have a sense, a sense of it. I might be wrong. <laughs> Once I start writing it, there are times when I think I'm starting a novel and then I realize I'm not, I'm just writing, you know, my way into something that's going to end up being much shorter. Um, but usually when I start writing a story, I'm, I'm pretty clear on that. This is going to stay a story in the case of the veins of the ocean. The first chapter of the veins of the ocean was a short story that I published many, many years before. And I thought I was just writing a short story and that would be its lifespan as a short story. And um, it was an exception in the sense that it stayed with me longer um, more than other short stories that I've written. And so I decided to return to it and, and it became a novel. But that is the only time that that has happened to me. Hmm. Where was the story published? It was published by The Atlantic. Huh. It was called The Bridge. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I kind of like the idea of short stories becoming novels. Um, likewise, have you ever... <laughs> Have you written ever written a novel and and at some point said, you know what, this doesn't work. This needs to be a short story. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, very often I think I'm writing a novel and then it just doesn't work. Period, and that's where it goes. <laughs> that's as far as it goes. But um, um, I can give you a specific example. Um, my first book, Vida, a collection of nine short stories, and in one of those is the title story called Vida. Uh, and that was a, a story that I originally intended to be a novel and I was having great difficulty with it. And um, at a certain point, you know, after much stress, um, I realized this is not going to work as a novel. And so I scrapped it completely and I rewrote it as a short story. And it really just sort of um, connected well with the other stories in the collection. And, and sure enough, became the title story. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then essays, right? You write essays as well. Yeah, I do. And how do those find their way to you? How do, how do the, how do the topics announce themselves to you? Well, uh, in my case, usually um, they're commissioned. I, you know, usually a topic is given to me. Um, and so, you know, that that will lead to some immediate inspiration in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, because I can see infinite country um, also being, you know, easily is nonfiction can easily be a, a series of essays about this topic. And I'm sure has been written about quite a bit. Um, so when this idea came to you, did it, come to you as um, this is a novel, this isn't an essay, this isn't a short story, it's going to be short. I mean, how, how, what was your vision of it when it, when it originally came to you? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to write a short novel. You know, I just come off of publishing Infinite Country. So um, I wanted to write one that that was um, short and somehow epic in scope while still feeling very intimate, that was kaleidoscopic and that it you know, refracted different characters' life experiences and brought them together in a way that felt cohesive and also spanned um, two continents and, and told the common story of movement and migration and homeland um, and tied all those things together. So that was really my vision. That's how I just, you know, sort of mapped it out in my, in my mind. I, I don't, I can't really think of any other novels that, that talk about this um, in, in the way that you do. 
that talk about immigration in the way that you do. There seems to be a lot of nonfiction that does, but um, I don't know, are, are there novels that you turn to that, that served as inspiration in any way, or do you kind of stay away from um, reading anything that's similar to what you're working on? Um, well, I'm Going to Country is my fourth book, and all my books have explored immigration diaspora in different ways, and particularly the space in between uh, parents who are immigrants and the children that they have in the new country and what that's like and the cultural chasm, as well as the homesickness and the longing and sometimes the doubt and the regret that accompanies it. So that's really the space that I haven't seen portrayed as much. You know, a lot of times people think the immigrants um, trajectory is just the leaving one place and arriving at another. But there's this great space in between, an emotional space of, of deep loss and, and interior longing and homesickness and, and an entire life that you left but still carry with you in parts and a sense of displacement in this new country. So it's complex and complicated and I've always tried to describe that in my stories and all my books. And uh, with Infinite Country, it's no different. I really wanted to get into the fact that um, immigrants very often don't know if they made the right choice and very often think about going back and dream about going back. And, and, um, and it's, it's really something that's not as cut and dry as a lot of people would like to think it is. Mm. Yeah, yeah, not at all. Um... Wow. How's it been launching a book in the pandemic? Huh. Well, it's been different. That's for sure. <laughs> um, it's been different. Um, you know, I, I am a person who loves going to indie bookstores and being with people, particularly because when you're talking about books in a physical space, there's so much connection that happens. People start to open up and share things and it's very spontaneous and, you're, it's really a, a wonderful opportunity for, for great human connection. Um, I think that doing things online is amazing too, and that you can do events and people from all over the world can attend. So it brings people together in different ways. So I don't wanna say one experience is better than the other. It's just very, very different. Will the pandemic be featured in any future works? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to get through this one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, how about any advice for writers um, in the in the midst of a project who are hitting a wall? Like, I don't know, are you disciplined enough that when you hit that wall, you just get through it and it doesn't stop you and, and you're familiar with it or... How do you deal with that? Well, I don't really think of them as walls. I just think that it's just a time to pause and recalibrate. Um, your book is talking to you all the time and it, your book is telling you, hey, step back for a second and look at it from a distance. And um, when that happens to me, and it happens, of course, often, that's what I do. I take a step back. I will then sort of fuel up on other forms of art um, film, music, art, or whatever, and um, and kind of let my mind have a rest from the page. But in giving it that rest, I'm also giving it the freedom to kind of play and explore and develop its new connections. So then I know that when I come back to it, sometimes my mind has already worked out issues that I was having, or just new possibilities start to present themselves for what I was dealing with before. Hmm. Is there any advice you've received along the way that's stuck with you and has been helpful in particular? For writing? Yeah. Um, I would have to say back up your computers, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in a variety of ways. Don't just use one system. Um, a, a good thing to do is just email everything to yourself, you know, at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, everything else you can kind of learn from anyone, but, um, but that's a very practical tip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it is. I a few years ago, <laughs> I, I think before there was anything um, like the cloud or iDrive or you know all of those, I my computer crashed and I I think I paid like eighteen hundred dollars to get everything back, and um, I immediately started backing up after that. It's like okay, I hear you. I hear you. Oh yeah, that, I think um, a lot of us have horror stories. Yeah, <laughs> and traumas related to you know the vanishing um, material and vanishing files. So um, yeah, I would say that's a very good habit to get into. Are you from Florida? I'm not. I'm not from Florida at all. There, there's so many writers who live in Florida. I've talked to so many writers. I'm. I. I don't know if it's always been that way, but. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. I've never been to Florida, so oh, it's, it's become um, a curious place. Yeah, I, uh, I live in South Florida and we have a really nice and active um, publishing literary community here. Um, but I've been here for about 17 years, but I moved here from New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have books and books, don't you? It's, yeah, beautiful uh, store. Yeah, it, it sounds like a great store and everything that Mitchell does is wonderful. Yeah. In closing, um, I, I just simply want to thank you for this book and um, for Veins of the Ocean. Now I must read your other work and uh, enjoy that too. So thank you so much, Patricia. Oh, thank you so much. I so enjoy talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Take care, Barbara. Bye-bye. That was Patricia Engel. Her book is Infinite Country, um, published by Simon & Schuster. So um, check it out however you can. Libraries, bookstores. Um, she's also doing events and you can look on her website. And, uh, and, and uh, if you're a writer out there, remember, stay in the chair. Thank you for listening.
Is your voice. 